7.17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Let's pray. Lord, we again just thank you for all that you have given us in your word, revealing yourself to us in your will, that we might know you and walk with you and worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. And we do, God, want you to be um, just regarded in each of our hearts as the Holy One that you are, and that we would, would have you first. And God, we pray that you would teach us and instruct us, and that you would be exalted as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're back to 1 Corinthians 7. We're doing this in little bits at a time, drawing out the pain as long as possible. Um, you may notice that there is an antique car show in, in Bernie today, and Main Street's closed because of that. Um, that always brings back a very unpleasant memory um, for me and my boys. Years ago, when the boys were just little, we walked down Main Street and saw all the old antique cars that had been fixed up and um, marveling at them and all. And my kids were just little and they couldn't see into the windows. And so we came up to one car that had running boards on it and I let one or two of the boys stand up on the running board so they could look into the car. Well, that was a big mistake. The owner was sitting in his folding chair right there on the sidewalk in front of his car and he jumped out of his chair yelled at my kids, and then yelled at me and said, get your kids under control before I get them under control. <laughs> a lot of things go through your mind at a moment like that. First of all, I thought my kids are not out of control. You are out of control. And if you try to touch my kids, then we're going to have an issue here. And so I contained myself by the grace of God, didn't say anything to him, and we walked away. He had made a spectacle of himself and everybody standing around knew he had and so I didn't say anything I walked away very proud of myself <clears throat> but I have prayed for rain every time there's an antique car show ever since <laughs> you'll notice it's been raining this morning God is so good I tell you that story because the issue there was not my children, but it was that man's heart. And in particular, what was defining, I think, his life. That old antique car was that man's life. And that's a sad way to live. This passage of scripture here, as Paul has now been 
really brought to a conclusion what he's been saying about unmarried people and widows, married people, people who are married in a mixed faith marriage, people who have been divorced, thinking about getting a divorce. He's wrapped all that up now and with, with this paragraph that I just read. And very simply, he's saying, when you become a Christian, the marital status you have at that point in your life, when you are first saved, you should view as God's assignment and God's calling. Whether it's single, married, divorced, widowed, the marriage status that you were in when you became a Christian, Paul says, that is God's assignment for you. Your marriage status is not your life. It is an aspect of your life. It is even God's calling for you, God's assignment for you. But we should not define life by our marriage status or by anything that we possess, like an antique car. Life is much more than that. We're going to get into the text here, but if you would just briefly turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 and the example of Abraham, which is here for our example, Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreign, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And now verse 10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And the point is, he was living in two worlds. He went out from the country he was in. He went to another country that God didn't even tell him until he got there that that was where he was supposed to go. He lived in tents. He was an owner of, of, of flocks, and, and he was a shepherd and a businessman. But although he was living in this world, his mind was constantly on heaven. And when it says that he was looking for the city which has for the found, looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, he wasn't looking for a city here on earth. He was looking for a heavenly city, on earth, doing what God's told him to do. But he understood this is his assignment. It is not his life, and he was looking for something that was that cannot be given in this life. So back to the text in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each. Nine times he's going to speak of calling in this one paragraph. It's a big deal to Paul. When you came to the Lord at that moment, and that's what he, he, when God, as God has called, it's a reference to our point in salvation. Chapter 1, twice in the first chapter he talks about in, in the first nine verses there, that our calling is, is um, in reference to our salvation. As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. And that little in reference there, thus I direct in all the churches, this is one of four times Paul says this to the Corinthians. In other words, the Corinthians were thinking that maybe they were being singled out and Paul was saying something to them that he wasn't saying to the other churches. And Paul says, no. He goes, my teaching is universal. It is consistent. 
and it's not cultural, it's not circumstantial. What I'm teaching, the unadulterated truth of God applies to all people everywhere. And we need to understand that. And so the Corinthians had to be reminded of this. This is not a localized truth. This is a universal truth that I teach in all the churches. Then he comes to the issue of circumcision, which again, this is Paul just being um, rhetorical a bit. He, he's just using different things that were in fact happening, but it's not really the context. The context here is about marriage. But he appeals to circumcision. He says, when any man, was he, was he called already circumcised, being a Jew? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called? Did he become a Christian in uncircumcision, a Gentile? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. You imagine what people's eyes were just bong. You've got to be kidding me. Especially for the Jewish people. Because circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It is a big deal. Marriage is a big deal. But circumcision, like marriage, is nothing in comparison to the Lord and walking in obedience to Him. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But churches were dividing over this. It was a big deal to them. And Paul says, it's nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. God is more important than these other things. Let each man, now he gets to his point, let each man remain in that condition or literally that calling in which he was called. So again, your, your marital status is a calling from God. Were you called while a slave? So he comes back, you know, speaking of other things. Some were. were you, did you become a Christian as a slave? Don't worry about it. If you're able also to become free, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. So again, our relationship with Christ defines our life. Not our relationship with other people, not our marriage status, not whether you're slave or free. We are defined by that relationship with the Lord. Don't worry about it. You're called while a slave, you're the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Most slavery took place because people got themselves into debt. And they worked until the debt was paid off and then they were released from their slavery. I think that's why verse 23, you were bought with a price, do not become the slaves of men. Proverbs says that the, that the borrower is the lender's slave. And so keep out of that. Don't become the slave of men if you can at all avoid it. Brethren, and this is his, his point, and now this is the third time he said it, Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. You say, three things, say one thing three times in one paragraph, you're trying to get a point across. Amen. How many of us spend our lives thinking that our life is defined by our marriage status? And all we can think about is wanting to change where we're at. Single people that live feeling like they will not have life until they're married. And now they can enjoy life. Others that say, I will not really be fulfilled until I have children. Others who say, I'm not going to ever be happy again until I'm out of this marriage. And others who have been through a divorce or they've had a spouse die say, there won't be happiness for me until I'm married again. 
All of that is so wrong. Our life cannot be found in the circumstances of this life. Amen. I, I've sometimes told our students at the beginning of a school year that one of the things that we hope that they really come to discover is that when Paul says that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, he's using the language of like saying when a fish is in the water, his environment is the water. And when you are in Christ, your environment is Christ. Your circumstance is Christ. You're still in all these other circumstances. But the, but the controlling circumstance of your life, the controlling environment for your, for your life as a Christian is Jesus Christ. It's not slavery. It's not freedom. It's not circumcision, uncircumcision, and it is not singleness or marriage. Christ is our environment. Christ is our circumstance. And so if, you, or if you're single, that's God's assignment. Be single as God's assignment to you. If you are married, it is God's assignment to you. Not your life. It's his assignment. And see, we make God's assignment our life. And, and this is where, where we get so twisted up and, and anxious and depressed because we've made what is merely an assignment from God to be the source of life for us. This is why so many people, when they do get married, they... They, they try, they, because they've lived for marriage, they're sucking life out of their spouse. And they kill the marriage from the very beginning. It's one of the things that Patsy and I talk about when we do premarital counseling with people is where is your life coming from? And if you haven't begun to discover that Christ is your life, when you go into marriage, you're going to wreck that marriage. You're going to, you're going to, because your husband, your, your wife cannot supply for you what only Christ can supply for you. You've got to know that. These are all big things. It's not wrong to, to look at your job as a calling from God. It's not wrong to look at raising your children as a calling from God. But your calling is not your life. Christ is your life. And he has to be kept, as Jerry Benjamin likes to say, preeminent. Absolutely preeminent, preeminent. Jerry will be here in a few weeks. That not only concludes what he's been saying up to this point concerning the single, unmarried, married, mixed faith marriages, widows, divorced. It also bridges him into the next section here in verse 25. Now concerning virgins. Now remember when Paul says now concerning, he's changing subjects. And so when he now talks about virgins, you know, well, how's that a change of subject? Because he's already been talking about unmarried people. Well, this is a different category of unmarried. Virgin is clearly an unmarried woman, but she's not simply a single woman, as we'll see. In fact, just jump ahead over to verse 34. And it says, and his interests are divided. And then the key part of verse 34, and the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. So these are two different people. There is an unmarried woman and there is a virgin woman. They are not one and the same in Paul's mind here. And I think this is a very important distinction to make, as we'll see for, for a few reasons, that, that what Paul is, is speaking to here is a woman who is engaged to be married, a woman who is in 
a, a relationship with a man that has marriage in mind. So this is not an unmarried woman who's not in a relationship, but this is an unmarried woman who is probably engaged by the language Paul is going to use. So now he wants to talk about that. He wants to talk about engaged women. So this is a different category than, he, than what he's mentioned before, so that's why the change of subject. And it's something that Jesus didn't speak to. So that's why he says, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So the Lord has not spoken to this, the Lord Jesus, but he's now speaking through Paul. I think then that it is, that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man not for, for, for a man to remain as he is. My mind just went to verse 1. Because remember in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And now he's coming back to that same phrase, it is good for a man to remain as he is, in view of the present distress. He doesn't tell us what the present distress is. A lot of commentaries believe it was an impending distress that's about to come, that he had enough insight uh, to what's going on in the world that he probably thought their time of great persecution is coming and in fact a time of that of great persecution did come and so whatever the present distress was Paul is saying it's a good time not to get married I don't know that we're in that time now but again it could be it's coming up and, it, and every generation has to look at the circumstances they're living in, particularly when it comes to marriage, and decide not only is this the right person to marry, but is this the right time to get married. There's always two aspects to God's will. Is this God's will, and is this the timing for God's will? We all know that there are many, many stories of, of young men and women um, during World War I and World War II in particular, that just before these men were shipped out to go into war and never know if they're going to come back, that they would immediately, the night before they were shipped out, they'd get married, have their honeymoon, and be on board the ship the next day. And they left many of those young brides home pregnant. Now they're single moms, and they have no idea whether their husbands are coming back from the war or not. That probably was not a good idea. In view of the present distress, it is good not to get married, okay? So there are going to be times when circumstances are such that it's just not a good time to get married. Now verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Now I have to explain something. You've probably heard me say this before. There is no Greek or Hebrew word for husband or wife. It doesn't exist, Okay? Now, I, we were just going over this passage in our staff meeting at His Hill recently, and my daughter-in-law, who happens to be part Greek, she immediately texted her mom and said, Mom, is, there, is that true? You know, and so, you know, I'm going, wow, him being, getting the rug ripped out from under me. And, you know, and, and my mom goes, well, I, you know, I, all I know is, is, is modern Greek, and in modern Greek, there is a, a Greek word for husband and wife. But there's not in ancient Greek. Biblical Greek Biblical Hebrew, there is no word for husband and wife. It is simply man, woman. So every time, I can say this in full authority, every time in Scripture you see the word husband and wife, an interpretive decision has been made. That is not a translation, that is an interpretation. Okay? Now many times it's absolutely correct, because the context tells us it is a husband or a wife. But sometimes they got the interpretation wrong. Here, 
Are you bound? It can simply be to a woman. And literally it means, are you bound to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you released? Because remember, this woman is a virgin. Okay, The subject here is virgins. Are you bound to a wife and the wife's a virgin? That didn't make sense. Okay, Are you bound simply to a woman? He seems to be speaking about the engagement period. Are you released from a woman? Has the engagement been broken? Do not seek a woman. Again, it's okay to be in the status that you're in. But if you should marry, again, in view of the present distress, that's what's controlling his thought now. You're engaged. You have this virgin that you're, that you're um, committed to, and you're wondering if you should get married or not. Some of you have already broken off the relationship. Some of you haven't. There's this distress that is coming. What should you do? If you should marry... You have not sinned. Now, if this is speaking about someone who has been divorced, which many people say that is the case in this passage, it introduces a contradiction. If Paul is now permitting remarriage, it, it introduces a clear contradiction with both verse 11, where it says, if you've been divorced, you have two options, be reconciled or remain single. And verse 39 where he says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. And so Paul's not going to contradict himself here. And again, the subject matter is virgins. And he's going to come right back to that very, very soon here. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. I have to be, again, kind of delicate with this because, you know, this is, you don't want to unnecessarily judge or criticize people. But I, I was sharing with the staff um, that, you know, as, as a parent with adult children, as they go through this process of choosing a spouse, um, it is different. You've heard me say that it is different with sons rather than daughters. It's a lot different. It was easy to watch my sons get married. It was hard when my daughter got married. Um, my role as a father is different with a son than with a daughter. With my sons, I'm going, go for it, man. With my daughter, I'm going, whoa. <laughs> you, know, you know, let's slow down here, right? It's just, it's different. And, but what I, I, I have to also, as a dad, I did, and thankfully it's over, you know, it's like I'm thankful the single days are over, never have to go back there again. I'm thankful that my kids are married, great. But I had, I had to, and now I'm in a place of thinking through how I used to think and how I think now, whether I'm wrong now or wrong then, I don't know, maybe I'm just wrong. Um, <laughs> But you got to think through this as a parent, and what kind of authority do you have when your adult children are making decisions to marry? Certainly you have influence, and certainly you have a right to say something, and certainly you want your children to honor you in the decision they're making. Can we all agree on that? But what about authority? And do I as the 
parent of a Christian child who is looking to marry a Christian, do I have the authority to tell them they cannot? I don't see that in Scripture. Paul, with all the authority of God, is saying, I just want to tell you, there is a, you're going to have it hard. If you go into this marriage, you're going to have it hard. He, he didn't mince anything about that. He says, it's going to be tough, and I am trying to spare you. I am trying to insulate you from this. And that's what parents do. And Paul was a spiritual father. He didn't want to see his spiritual children go through hard times unnecessarily. And yet he never forbids it. He didn't cross over and say, you cannot marry. That gives me great caution. Nor did he say, it is sin if you do marry, because I'm telling you, you probably shouldn't marry. He says, you have not sinned if you get married. They're adults. They love Christ. What, isn't that exactly what you pray for when your kids are growing up? God, give them a Christian spouse who will love you and love each other. Amen. And then God supplies that, and you go, I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, and you go, what have you been praying for? And now God does that, and, and, and we get all worked up and say, wrong person. Paul doesn't ever venture to say that. You know, we've had so many marriages that have formed through his hill. There, there ought to be a commission paid. You know, I'm telling you. I mean, it, my retirement would be set if there was a commission paid for every marriage that came out of his hill. But some of those marriages, I looked at them and I'm just going, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. These two people are doomed for disaster. And they have had wonderful marriages. Others, I'm looking at them and I go, marriage made in heaven. And it hasn't been. And those, some of those marriages have failed. I don't know anything. How do I know? I mean, really, thank you. <laughs> Great time, Leon, to say amen. I appreciate that. I mean, really, we, we want the Lord's will to be done. And we're not, you know, we, 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 as, as we get older, you can see things that maybe these young people that are blind and in love, they can't see. We get that. But God's agenda, we have to remember, just as our life is not marriage, God's agenda is not always just to have every day of marriage to be blissful. God's agenda is to use singleness and to use marriage, either one, it doesn't matter to God, to use singleness or to use marriage to bring us into greater conformity to Jesus Christ. And that means whether you're single or married, you're going to have some hard times. And we can't go through life just trying to protect ourselves from every hardship. And Paul knew that. He's going to say in 1 Corinthians just how hard his life was. Being single does not necessarily guarantee that your life is going to be easy. Life is hard. So all Paul could do was say, you don't, tr don't try to make it harder than it's going to be. You don't pray for difficulties. You know, and when you see a big thing coming, don't be an idiot and just walk into it, you know, just saying this is going to be easy. But 
Even though singleness is, generally speaking, easier, less troublesome than marriage is. When two Christians get married, they have not sinned. Period. Parents, be careful. Don't say more than what God's Word is saying. And if God's Word says, when two young Christians are getting married, they may have it hard, but they have not sinned. Don't say more than God's saying. Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, this is another kind of interesting passage here, but time has been shortened. Paul really, on good reason, believed that Jesus could come at any time, and obviously he can come still. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to rapture the church, and he could take the church out at any time. Time has been shortened. Maybe he's talking about this impending distress that's coming. Uh, maybe he, he, he really believes that many Christians will lose their lives. And so Paul's going, you need to live. And once again, and just stating it different ways, you need to live with not letting the things of this world define you. So that from now on, both those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. That's all things of this world. These things should not define you. They should not be your life. If you could not go to the store next week and buy something when you're feeling depressed... Is it going to make your depression worse? I mean, we all like to medicate ourselves in different ways, right? And we go, some people just want to go buy something, go shopping, and I feel so much better. That's not your life. That's not the source of life. Some people are, you know, I'm, I'm, different times when I've really, really been weeping and grieving, and it's hard to even go out in public because other people are laughing and carrying on. They go, don't you even sense what's going on in my life? Don't you even have any, any understanding of how hard life is? And you're just laughing and cutting up. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul's saying, don't let your life be defined by your grief. Don't let your life be defined by your joy. Live this in this world as though this is not your home. There's more to this life than the circumstances that this world gives us. Verse 32, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. I hope that's true for all of you who are single. This is your opportunity in life to enjoy Jesus without distraction. I told the staff that I, I was so thankful that God did that in my heart and did it in Patsy's heart while we were single. We weren't even dating at the time. I was in Bible college and she was a nurse in North Carolina. And, and I, I, I can vividly, vividly remember thinking, life with Jesus is so good. I don't know that I want to be married. Then I went to seminary, and that changed. But God brought that change about in my heart. But I'm thankful that I can look back and say there was a time when I 
as a single man, was realizing how much I could just be undistracted in my devotion to Jesus and what a great gift it was. Every single person, you have such an opportunity to know Christ and walk with Christ without the hindrance of competing demands like you will have when you get married. Every woman, you know, I mean, without exception, you know, every woman that wants to be a mom just thinks, oh, my word, when I, when I, when I, my life is going to come together when I have young children. And this is why I like for our young moms at His Hill to continue to have discipleship groups. Because they're going, how can I have a discipleship group? I've got these little kids running around screaming and everything. And I go, that's why you need to have a discipleship group. Because these young single women don't know what it's like. And it is the hardest job on earth. You don't even have time to go to the bathroom. You know, much less have devotions. How are you going to have devotions? You can't even go to the bathroom. The kids are screaming. They need you constantly. I thought it was going to be so fulfilling. And one young mom won't tell me one time, I said, how's it going? And she's the most gentle person you ever met in your life. And she says, sometimes I just want to put that baby in the diaper pail and walk away. And I just went... <laughs> you gotta, you gotta be kidding. Grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. When you are single, you've been given a privileged, privileged state before God. Enjoy the Lord in it. Enjoy the gift that He's given you. The one who is married, verse 33, is concerned about the things of the world. Not sinful things, they're just things that are going to pass away. You can't be as exclusively concerned about eternal things when you're married. And then he names in particular, so you would have thought, the children. How he may please his wife. It's another point that Paul's making if you're not catching it. The number one relationship you have as a married person is not your children. It is your spouse. You've got to realize that. Too many people are living for their children, and the children aren't turning out any better for it. Live for each other in Christ, because that's a godly thing to do. You need to think to how to please your spouse. God wants you to. It's not a sinful thing. It's a godly thing to do. Children come next. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And she's supposed to be concerned with that. If you love somebody, you do want to please them. Nothing wrong with that. But it makes her life distracting. And this I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. No way, no way does Paul say that being single is more spiritual. He is not against marriage, but Paul is immensely practical. He is being pastoral, and he's saying that you will have as a single person greater opportunity for undistracted devotion to the Lord, period. But he is not against marriage. And he is not saying that singleness will make you more spiritual. He's simply saying you'll have more time to spend 
in devotion without distraction to Christ. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin. And then in italics in your Bible is the word daughter. No, this is a very hard passage to translate. In every one of your Bibles, if you have any marginal readings, there's going to be all kinds of marginal, other optional readings here. Because nobody knows how to take this, but the, but the assumption is one of two things. Either the virgin, that now the father comes into play, should I let my, my engaged daughter get married, or should I counsel her not to get married? That's the one option, and that's how the New American Standard and many Bibles take it. The other is how I'm telling you that just daughter is not in the text, and it introduces something here that we never see anywhere else in Scripture, because a, an unmarried woman nowhere in Scripture is referred to as her father's virgin. That's just kind of a hard term to accept. And so it just doesn't seem quite natural. I think it's more natural to say Paul is, again, just on topic, he hasn't changed subjects. He's saying that if you are, are, are engaged to a woman and you see that you are acting unbecomingly, doesn't explain what that is. It can be that you are, are you know, the sexual passions are, are, are too strong and, and you need to get married. It could be that you are, are holding her off from getting married because when you're engaged, she's off the market. And, and you know, and, and sooner or later, I mean, you, you need to keep engagement short. As short as possible, I believe, and 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 not just keep her off the market if you're not going to marry her. I, I know a guy that that it wasn't so much his fault, but but um, there was a girl that waited on him for over ten years, from the time she was twenty to the time she was thirty. She kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's not that he was encouraging her all the time. He kept telling her, you you know, I'm not the one for you, but she just she waited until he got married, and then. She found somebody else. And they've done very well. She didn't say found God gave her another man, the right man. But for 10 years, she just waited. And that could be the, the man's fault. He's keeping her that way. And I, you know, we, I, so many years at Bible school, and I'm not, not saying that's happened this year. Girl, girls, don't get upset with me. But so many years in Bible school, we see girls get engaged the week before they come to Bible school. And you wonder why. Well, I'm the cynic that I am. Sometimes I think it's because the guy back home wants to take her off the market because she's coming to the happy hunting grounds and there's other guys around and he knows that and he doesn't want to lose her. And so he puts a ring on her finger and now she's off the market. Okay. And so guys do that kind of thing. They want to want to heads or bets. They want to make sure she's not going to be looking anywhere else. And he says that may be what's unbecoming. You've got to think of her. You've, again, in, in the decisions that you make, honoring the Lord and honoring the person that you're involved with. If she should be of full age, meaning that she's of marriage age, it would seem, it must, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. So again, Paul's saying it's not sin to get married. Let her marry. It can also be translated, let them marry. 
But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart. So again, nobody else is saying this. And again, the focus is on the man here, but all the more important for a Christian dad when it comes to his Christian son, take care. It's one thing for a, for a woman, a daughter who is under her father's care, for that dad to be a bit possessive. But this is the man. And nowhere in here is Paul saying, listen to what your dad says. Do what your dad says. He's, he's treating these Christian men as units alone, directly talking to them. Now, sure, should they listen to their parents? Absolutely. But do the parents have the right to tell their young Christian men when to get married and who to marry? I do not see that in the text. You will do, it's okay to marry, but if you decide not to marry, you will do well. Verse 38, so then both he who gives his own virgin in marriage, and again, it could just be, that, again, it's a hard translation there, all the commentaries agree, difficult verse to translate. It could simply mean who, he who marries his virgin does well, and he who does not marry her will do better. He's not against marriage. He's just saying singleness is easier, generally speaking, than marriage is. And it's certainly less distracting in our devotion to the Lord. And then he, he summarizes the chapter, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. The permanency of marriage. And this is why Paul's focus is consistently on the husband-wife relationship. That takes priority even over the children. Because that relationship with the children, even though they will always be blood, they will not always be in your home. And the marriage relationship is the one permanent relationship that God has made. And Paul is very clear, only death is going to break that relationship. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, with the one condition only in the Lord. You can marry a Christian. But in my opinion, she, the widow, is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. So really, it, it, he says so much in these verses, but it's not complicated. Just to review very quickly. Number one, if I can turn my page here. Number one, he's saying your marital status is God's assignment and calling. Therefore, don't seek to change it. And don't let it define your life. There's a difference between it being God's assignment and being life itself. It is not life itself. Number two, when single people contemplate marriage, they need to think of their relationship with the Lord and the ministry that He has for them, first and foremost. Think first about the Lord and the ministry He has for you. And I know single people who have come to the very sober decision that God does not want them to get married. They do not feel they have the gift of celibacy, but they have 
the conviction before God that God's, the ministry God has given me, I am not suitable for marriage. Marriage is not suitable for me. There are different men um, who have been very, very greatly used of God in Christian ministry who probably should not have been married. They were so, so focused on ministry and to the gifting and the calling that God had given them, writing books and preaching and stuff, that they just could not fulfill that calling and love their wives as Christ loves the church. They probably should not have gotten married. I think of a man like John Stott, who went to be with the Lord a couple years ago, never married. And God greatly used that man. That man was a prolific writer. And, and he could not have loved his wife as she would needed to have been loved and written like he wrote. And he made a conscious decision. God has given me a ministry, I see it while I'm still single, that I cannot fulfill and be married. And so he gave up marriage to fulfill the ministry that God gave him. God gave him an assignment. And that assignment meant that he could not, in good conscience, marry and fulfill that assignment. We need to think of these things. We need to choose, encourage each other. If you're married, tell you, we, we all just, oh man, we just, you know, we're always matchmaking, wanting to put people together. I'm guilty of it. Um, we need to be careful. Because it may not be God's stirring in their hearts. And we want them first and foremost, while they're single, to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. And God will awaken their hearts to marriage if that's what He wants for them. We don't need to be pushing it on people. Choosing marriage is not sinful. And there are good reasons to remain single. I stole this from somebody else I'm about to read, but this is, I'll conclude with this. And it's seven scriptural statements regarding singleness. I don't remember where I got it, but I'm telling you it's not mine, so it's not plagiarism. Number one, singleness is a good state from 1 Corinthians 7, 8. A subtitle to that, a person is not less spiritual or less favored by God because he is not married. One of our students that was with us, she went back home. Um, she texted or emailed me and Patsy and, and said that um, as soon as she got home, there were well-meaning people in that church that said, why did you not find a husband while you were in the United States? What is wrong with you? It's been very hard for her to see how the church has treated her because she came home single. Because she came home and because she came home single. Number two, singleness is a good state, especially in times of distress. There are times when it is prudent to not marry. Number three, singleness will bring less trouble than being married. Thank God for your minimal responsibilities and concerns. Number four, it is not sin for the single person to marry. Number five, the single person should marry if he does not have self-control from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2 and verse 9. Lust is not a motivation to marry, but lack of self-control may be indication that God's design is for the person, a person to be married. Number six, a person married or single should be content in the state that they are in. It is preferable for a person to not seek to change the state that he is in. 
And seven, singleness provides greater opportunity for undistracted devotion to the Lord. In summary, singleness is a serious and equal option to marriage, as Paul would say. And I will close us in prayer. I do thank you, Father, for all that you are to us. And Lord, whether single or married, we are tempted every day to try and draw life from circumstances around us, from the things of this world, and fail to truly appreciate that Jesus is life. And I do pray, God, that we would be content in the circumstances that we are in. If a person can be content as God's free man while a slave, we can be content, whether single or married. And I pray that we would be. That you would be glorified, that like Abraham, while we live in this world and have to do the things that the world demands, that our eyes would be fixed on Christ and on the city whose foundation and architect is not of this world. We thank you, Jesus, for your sufficiency and your adequacy in all of life. May we be ruled, Lord, by you. In Christ's name, amen.